Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. It's Matt Parker, the host of the Stretch Four podcast, also the founder and CEO of a company called Modern Tax. And we're here coming to you today on this beautiful Monday. I'm reporting and recording this from San Francisco. Uh, to start off the show, I am in my third episode of this podcast, which also has a newsletter component. So please check us out at stretch4.substack.com slash subscribe. It's a free newsletter that comes out weekly. It's really the musings of my life, my mind as a founder, CEO, running a venture-backed startup in San Francisco. I talk with a lot of people that are doing similar things within the venture capital startup ecosystem or eco chamber, whichever word you want to use. Uh, so definitely check it, check us out there. We do weekly newsletters that come out Sunday on Sundays at 12. And then we release this podcast on Mondays and we occasionally do a deep dive. Last deep dive I did was with my wife, Whitney. We talked about the 10 things we learned in the first 10 months of being a parent as our son is fastly approaching his first birthday. And we are trying to prepare for that birthday party. Uh, lots of pressure with the world of Instagram these days to make your kid's first birthday party look pretty extravagant, but we're, we're not that type of couple or that type of those type of people, but there is a little pressure to have a cool first birthday party. So that's coming up next month. If you want to find anything about any more information about me personally, hit me up on Twitter. I'm Matt A. Parker on Twitter. Uh, so you'll get tweets about a lot of the things I cover in the newsletter, among other things. Uh, and, you know, Twitter is a very spicy place these days. So that's where you can find out more about me. This is the third episode of the Stretch Four podcast. And thank you, everyone um, who's downloaded and listened to either or both of the first two episodes. We did fairly well, beat my expectations, well over 100 downloads as of, uh, you know, when I'm recording this. So it's very exciting to see that the dopamine is hitting me every time I check that and see more people are downloading it. Uh, people that are downloading it across the world. And this today's show, we got a guest from Germany, from Berlin. So I'm really excited that this podcast is global. We're not just a little local podcast. Got listeners uh, across the world. So thank you, everyone who's been checking out the podcast. Shoot your feedback to me. Uh, my email directly is matt at stretch4.co. Uh, and you can find me there. So hit me up. Any feedback you have, got some great feedback some of the stuff that we've been talking about in the first few episodes. So with that being said, let's get into this show. Uh, so this week, what I want to do every month on this show is talk about what I've been reading uh, in a more kind of summarized version. I think reading is something that I really didn't start doing until my late 20s, and I'm far behind, so I kind of feel like I'm playing catch-up. There's so much information out there, so many great books I want to read. Like just checking out, you know, my Goodreads, I probably have, you know, 1,500 or so books that are bookmarked to be read at some point. So every month, what I want to do is I want to just give a quick walkthrough, a recap of what I read. I'd love to know what you're reading. You can share that with me. Uh, again, shoot me an email, comment on the, uh, on the post for this podcast. That will also be great. Uh, definitely would love for the shout outs to come there. Definitely anyone, you know, whatever books you're reading, I tend to read mostly nonfiction. 
I'm trying to open myself up to fiction, sci-fi. So shoot me your recommendations uh, in the comments. And if you are enjoying this podcast and enjoying this content, please like, subscribe, and share. We had a lot of you sharing the episode, so that's always great when I see that. Uh, thank you for kind of promoting it to your friends and whoever you think might find it useful. So this week we want to break down the three books that I read in January. We're going to do a health and wellness check-in, which is brought to you by Future. So I'm going to walk through kind of my performance on the Future app this week or this month, this past month, past 30 days. I had a pretty good first 30 days to kick off the year. So really excited to see some gains there. Also talk a little bit about the stretch for business and kind of unpack what the whole idea of doing a podcast and a newsletter while also running a company is for me, where I think there are advantages and obviously where I think there are disadvantages and things that I need to improve. And then lastly, we had a very interesting interview today with a gentleman by the name of Salim Binyat. He is the founder and CEO of a company called Bento.me. Me and Salim met over the internet. Salim lives in Berlin, Germany, spends most of his time in Europe, but he runs a company, Bento.me, which is an early stage startup focusing on helping build out the creator platform. So his product is built for creators. I would put it in the bucket of like a link, link tree or something like that, but a little bit more design focused from the conversation that we had. So we had a very interesting conversation about how he looks at all the things that we talk about on this podcast, health and wellness, fitness, how he was able to get into the Sequoia Arc Accelerator. He was one of the first 17 participants in that new accelerator that we talked about on last week's podcast. So very, very exciting uh, to get to the interview at the end of this. And then we'll have some announcements, uh, some speaking events that I've been, you know, uh, gratefully invited to speak at here in the next couple of months that I would love to share and love to collaborate with you in person if you're listening to this podcast. But again, thanks a lot for listening. Very excited to get to the show. Let's get to it. So this week, I want to recap what I've been reading, because I think reading is so critical to the founder journey. There's so much information that is accessible, and so many of the storylines of being a founder, building companies, taking care of yourself are often found in books. So I want to recap three books I read in January. Uh, Book number one, uh, I got this recommendation from a friend of mine who works in healthcare and works at a hospital, is very technical and engineering and very smart. And he sent me this book maybe a couple years ago, and i just never gotten around to it. I'd also seen it kind of in the, like, the tech VC circles. People were recommending it. But the book is Loon Shots. The book is by Safi Bakal, who's an American author, physicist, technologist, business executive, author, and he spent time at Harvard and Stanford. And... The gist of the book is he basically highlights various companies and tells the stories of how they were essentially loon shots and like how they created ideas, how all this stuff is very process driven. And he he walks through several case studies over a very like long period of time, right? Like he dates businesses back to the early 1900s all the way to until now with what we're experiencing with, with technology and innovation. So I really enjoyed the book. I mean, it was it was a quick, you know, quick read. I both had it on Audible as well as I believe I had the 
the Kindle version of it. So I was reading, listening to it, and it's a very good storytelling book. I would recommend it. I would say it's a it, to to practically apply a lot of those things is is a little bit hard because I mean you're talking about how Steve Jobs created Apple and kind of his whole story, which that narrative has been told many times. But just the the, the stories are very very sharp. I would. I think the biggest comparison that I have to it is this other podcast that I listen to from time to time called Founders uh, by David Cerna, who is very, very like good at communicating and getting through these books in a way that's very unique. I think Loonshot is like really like a, a book version of what David is doing with Founders, the Founders podcast. But good book nonetheless. He had some good recommendation. I didn't recommendations. I didn't take a lot of notes. It was more so just like a story arc and understanding these stories and how he framed it. And it's a good book. I mean, I haven't read any of his other books. I probably, you know, would read other books by him. But this is my introduction to Safi. And so definitely enjoyed Loon Shots. Uh, the second book that I read in, in January was probably my favorite book in January. This book was by a New York bestseller uh, named Christopher Leonard. I highly recommend his book. So I, the first book I read by Christopher Leonard was a book called Cokeland, which is really an extraordinary account of like the biggest private company in the world and how it got to be that way. And it happened in, you know, it happens in a place where you don't expect it. It deals heavily with the Koch brothers who are notoriously known for, how they, you know, essentially use politics and bureaucracy to create these monopolies and these systems and these major businesses in the middle of the country. And Lords of Easy Money is the second book, and that's the book that I read, which is a similar take, and I really liked it because I think what we're going through now with the financial markets, and I'm by no means an economist, but you do understand, like, the system of the way money works and how it gets de deployed and distributed to people, it is very much driven by the Fed. And you felt that with the pandemic. We were just getting checks into our bank accounts, small business loans, all this stuff was happening. And Lords of Easy Money does a great job of kind of walking you through the story, and it really does a good job of, like, telling you who the key people are making these decisions. The book is based around an individual named Tom Honig, who was the head of the Fed in Kansas City for quite some time. And this guy, is, like, has this perspective that, like, just printing money and creating money all the time is just not a good thing, right? Quantitative easing is the word that's used throughout the book. And he really does a good job, the, the author, of telling the story from different views, right? So, you know, leading up to right now, like just this week, you know, Jerome Powell makes a statement on what is going to happen with interest rates, what he expects to happen. These people control so much of just how everything flows. And it was just fascinating to see how learning a lot of these words, again, like I think I got a D in, economy, in, in economics at James Madison. I, it was probably not the class that – I think actually – Econ economics was the class that almost kept me from graduating. I did so bad in economics that like I retook it to try to boost my GPA and it dropped my GPA and they just like said, fuck it. Like we're not even going to count this class against you. So it was not a class that I was really, really in tuned in. But obviously now with what I do on a day to day basis, 
my career, understanding how money works, it's quite critical to know how things happen and how interest rates can affect everything. So this book is a big one. I would recommend it to anybody that's just, you know, if you have any like real questions, it's written in a way where it's very easy to digest a lot of very hard terminology, right? Like words, like I took notes like allocative effect, asset bubbles, quantitative easing, primary dealers, repo loans, like all these words that you might just like think are just crazy. Like he does a very good job of getting really into the minute details. He also talks about all these these like key events, the the Kansas City Fed symposium that happens in Jackson Hole, Wyoming every summer. Like guess who's going to that event, right? Guess who's not invited to that dinner party up in Jackson Hole? And just like the places that these people visit that are kind of running the like money printing machine that is the fed are quite interesting so i definitely would read that book it it, it definitely stuck out that's probably one i'll probably go back through i just think christopher leonard's like just a great author right like he he distills down some of these very complicated stories into very succinct very straightforward books the last book that i read in january this is a follow-up to a book that i'd read i want to say i read it in 2018 uh, called The Red Notice, and it's by another New York Times bestseller named Bill Browder. Bill Browder kind of recaps his story of he's basically being chased down by the Russian mob and government, right? And he's like the most wanted man in Russia. What was interesting, more so than that story, like, which I, that story is great, right? Especially now with like how much we understand how much of the threat Russia is like you kind of lean to be on Bill Browder's side. But what I liked about the book, obviously in my day-to-day job, I'm building modern tax, which is a data infrastructure company. And data is very much the lifeblood of our company. The more data we have, the more data we can sell, the more money we make, the more on and on. Obviously that is important. But what was really interesting about Bill Browder is, you know, he talks a lot about how he became who he was. A lot of the story of Bill Browder is about all the kind of things he's doing around human rights. And now even his son, Joshua Browder, runs a company called Do Not Pay, which is like trying to build the, the Intuit for consumer rights, where you can like literally just sue your bank for overdrafting you for $35. And Bill Browder is a, a very good writer, but like really what I got from this book was just like how good of a fucking marketer he is. Like this guy really knows how to market. And like, being a founder, being a company builder, you really are doing a lot of what you're doing to just get your name out there, get people to know who you are, I want to talk to you and talk about you. And really, that's what I got from this book. Bill Browder is like very, very good at marketing, and he's a very, very data-driven per- person. So like the way he made his money initially was through the Hermitage Fund, which I don't, I don't remember that much from the book when he, his first book, Red Notice, but. The Hermitage Fund was a very, very unique business. A hedge fund, they leveraged data that they would get access to, which from the reading of this book, it's pretty easy to get access to data. I'm actually working on an essay around some of the things in this book around taxes and refunds. And so it's it's a very interesting way that it works in Russia where data is pretty you know, you could pretty much go get anybody's information in, in Russia if you like have enough money and you know what to do. So he essentially built his whole like platform on data as well as how he kind of chased down 
you know, the Russian mobsters that killed his friend that were after him. And, like, the, you, you got to read the book to know the story. It's not going to give it away. But, like, he's a very data-driven person, and he's a very good marketer, right? Like, this book is, like, he gets covered by every news outlet in the world because of this story. And it's a very good book if you want to, like, have a riveting. It's it's also, like, very interesting. It's told in a way where you you feel like you're with him. But I really, really, the, the biggest things I picked up from the book were just how good you got to be at marketing to really be successful and how much, how valuable data can be to any kind of business that you're building, specifically as it relates to financial services. So those are the three books I read in January. I'll try to recap the books once a month, depending on like the workload and time. I'm a reader of, I don't feel like I have to read every book. And I also don't feel like, and I mean that, and that's a, that's a double entendre, like I don't feel like I have to physically read every word on a page in a book to consider it read, right? I mean, I, I subscribe to Audible, and I, I think that counts. And the second part is I don't feel like I have to finish every book either. If a book's not pulling me forward after a couple chapters, then I'm just going to move on. Like I got books sitting on my nightstand that I haven't finished that I'm like, you got me in chapter one, but like you're not just like, I, I, I just not floored that I have to read or listen to this book. And so... Loon Shots, Lord of Easy Money, and Freezing Order were definitely three that I got all the way through, and I really enjoyed reading those books. But that's my book recaps. Shoot me a link. Make some comments in the post. Let me know what you're reading, what I should be reading. If you have any feedback around any of these three books that I've mentioned, that would be great. So I want to jump into the second segment on today's show, which is brought to you by our sponsor, Future.co. Again, that's Future.co. Future is a fitness app where you sign up, you subscribe, you get paired up with a personalized trainer. They have, I think, now hundreds of personal trainers all across the country that are all registered fitness trainers. My trainer is actually out of Florida. His name's Alex. I have friends that are now trainers on Future, former NBA trainers train on Future. So they really have some very great people that are doing one-on-one fitness training with you through an app. And so what I want to do on this segment of the podcast is just walk through what I did on Future uh, in January. So every month, Future gives you a, you know, a recap or a report of, you know, your workouts and, you know, it's, it's based on, you know, the assignments that you're getting from your trainer, my trainer, Alex, you know, we're really, really heavy on, I'm getting ready for half marathon. So I've decided that I'm going to do it. I don't know how well I'm going to do at it. I don't know what the benchmarks are, but I want to, I want to do it. You know, I want to do some kind of long-term far fitness training exercise and I obviously want to continue to keep my same physique and actually slim down a bit. Right now, I'm checking in about 240, 241 day to day. I'd like to get that down to like 235, 230, right? I mean, I remember in college when I like first started playing college basketball, I was like 211. And I haven't gotten any taller since then. So, you know, I'm looking at the scale and I'm like, 240 is not bad. And I don't, I feel like I don't look bad. I don't feel unhealthy, but you can always cut down weight, right? Like the more, and again, you know, weight for me is like really just functionality. Like 
easier on my knees, easier on, you know, walking, moving. It's it's better to be less, and I'd like to see that scale going down and get it a stable place as opposed to continually going up. So I've been working on that for really the past two months, but I think the fitness marathon type thing is really just to, like, really tone in on that and get some endurance built up and get ready for that. So this month I had 24 active days on future, which was up six days from December 5th to January 3rd. So I got to the gym six more times, which makes sense, right? December you're traveling, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of family stuff. So I'm not surprised getting in the gym six more days is good. Uh, 25 total workouts, 12,012 calories burned, 100 or 1,383 minutes spent in active fitness. So the cool thing about fitness is our future is everything is trapped, tracked through your, your Apple watch and they have an app that syncs up your workouts and it's, it's gotten better, right? They've raised some venture money. And they, they're doing very well with the, the tooling and the actual fitness, right? All my workouts are in my future app, which Alex can then see and download and he can adjust my weights. He can adjust, you know, like I had a workout this week that, you know, last week that just wasn't that interesting. So I quickly was like, Hey, you know, this workout, I knocked it out pretty easy. It wasn't that hard. Well, okay. Maybe I need to increase my weight or maybe we need to add some more intensity or cardio. Uh, a longer cardio run at the end because I typically like to do my cardio at the end and I guarantee next week on, you know, this week that workout is going to be harder and we have that communication. It's all chat based. And so it's really important uh, for me. It's a really big part of my life these days. It's like to get in the gym and make sure I'm doing, you know, some form of physical fitness on a daily basis. The average heart rate or the average wattage was 145 for my workouts. And, you know, dating back to when I got on the future app, I've been on the future app since October 22nd of 2021. I've done a total of 347 workouts, over 17,000 minutes, and I've burned over 165,000 calories. So I am a big fan of this app. I think it's super critical to staying fit and staying active. And it's a lot cheaper than a personal trainer. So the gym I go to in San Francisco, I mean, they're charging $100, $250 every two or three workouts. So it gets quite expensive to have someone with you physically. Future breaks down to I'm getting all these workouts. I'm getting, you know, one-on-one training. You know, my trainer's not in my gym with me. I, I'm the type of person where I just need somebody to text me every morning, let me know, like, hey, how'd it go? It's like kind of like just like in my mind of like I need to have that, you know, like at this time, at this point in my life, or I just will just like go off. And I also need the structure, right? I need to have the actual physical like list of things that I want to do. And I like it to be automated. Like I'm not writing these things down. It's in an app. It's saved. I can update and do things. So future.co, check it out. Click a link. In the newsletter to get 50% off your first three months, my wife is, is is using it right now. So she's really liking and enjoying having a trainer coming off of, you know, off of starting our family. You know, just it gets you back into a cycle of 
or keeps you in a cycle if you're like me, keeps gives you that fitness structure. So that is kind of how I did last month. Obviously, if I hit 25 workouts in January, let's go ahead and get 26, 27 in February. It's a short month, and I'll give you an update, and you'll know how I did next month. So thank you for future also for helping us with this podcast, helping support us with this podcast and keep the bills paid. So that is the health and wellness check-in for the month of January. The last segment of this week's show ahead of our interview is recapping some of the things for the Stretch 4 business that we've accomplished in January. Always remind people this is a business, although it is a side project, it's fun, bills got to be paid. So I will say that I did a, had a pretty good start to 2023, lots of room to grow. So there's three kind of core areas that I try to track in, in, in Monster's business. Obviously, what money's coming in from doing this and producing this content. So obviously, if you are a subscriber, free subscriber, love for you to provide us feedback or share it with those that you feel like would find value. If you're a paying subscriber, thank you for subscribing and paying for the content that we produce here. And then also, you know, our sponsors, you know, Future does a very good job of making sure that you know, they support this this podcast and this newsletter. So in January, we made $5,000, which was good. We've set a goal to increase that in February. We've already kind of started our February. February is here. So if you are out there and you enjoy this content, you enjoy this podcast, feedback is always welcome. Subscriptions are always welcome, as well as sponsorships are always welcome. You know, I generally only like to work with companies that I have some form of use and affinity for. So, but if, you know, if you're a startup founder, if you're, you generally are a series B or advanced founder, you're selling to the customer base that typically listens to this podcast, which is founders, operators, people in tech. If you look at the numbers of this podcast, most people, you know, 35% of our subscribers are in California. So if you are a business that's interested in broadcasting to a very unique niche group of people, primarily in California, in the United States, 78% of our, our listeners are in the United States to the podcast. We do have 5% of our listeners are in the UK, 4% are in Germany, 2% are in Ireland. We have a German founder coming on the show, so hopefully our German listener base uh, will increase after this week. But yeah, we're interested in having those conversations uh, and, you know, also what we're planning to do in the future with Modern Tax. So from a metrics base, we are right around a thousand subscribers. We did cut down on our subscribers this month. I think I cut about 200 or so people from the list that just weren't even, that weren't really engaging in the content. It actually hurts your numbers in Substack, right? Your open rates are kind of what is the most important thing about, you know, putting out this content. So our open rates went up and our subscriber base is still growing. So figuring out all that is, you know, part of my job now that you start something, you have to kind of continue to market it, grow it, create good producing, create and produce good, compelling content. So 
you know, we've set a stretch goal to get to 1,800 or so subscribers by the end of Q1. And, you know, we're, we're on our way. We're a little over the halfway point towards that. From the view count, we had fairly good views in January. Not to be specific, but we had a total of around 6,000 views all of 2022. And in January alone, we were right around 20% of that. So we had a good month in January. I think that was helped by launching the podcast, people sharing the podcast. I don't know if moving to the Sunday, which was a recommendation from a friend, helped. But actually in the first three weeks that we've done it now, we have seen an uptick. Obviously, now that we have a podcast that comes out on Monday, you get that. Generally, I'll try to get that to people. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to stick with this 4 p.m. You know, people get off work on Monday. Boom, you get a, a nice podcast in your inbox. Still working on getting the podcast distributed across all the podcast platforms. But overall, our view count is good. We'd like to kind of continue to do more and more of those, get more and more of those views and our newsletter is getting a, a select cohort of views, and our podcast is doing well. I mean, we're right now right around two, almost 200 downloads for the first two episodes, which is pretty impressive for a podcast that there's, like, so many podcasts. So, you know, there's something that's working there just in the first sample size. And, again, we want to make these podcasts very much about a lot of the founder attributes and things that happen in the lifestyle of the founder. I think there's a lot of great podcasts out there on fundraising tactics, fundraising stories, product market fit, company building, management. I mean, there's so many, you know, there's so much content out there, but like, I feel like there's really not a lot of podcasts that really get into health and wellness, you know, whether that's fitness, whether that's diet, whether that's sleep. Also the family side is very important, obviously to me, right. Uh, understanding what it feels like to be a, a family. Like I was talking to someone this week who works in tech, she's younger and, you know, just, she sees my Instagram. She knows I have a kid. It's just like, you know, a lot of people don't think about when you start a family, the impact it has on like the way you work and the time you have. So it's very important to, I feel like nurture these conversations around that. I mean, everybody doesn't have a kid, so it's not relevant, but I do think there's a missing component of information, right? I wish there was something like this for me pr prior to starting a family to understand the ups and downs in a more kind of real level. So that is something that we will continue to do and continue to thrive is produce content in the areas that are missing for the founder startup ecosystem. Other things, again, our goal is to get to 1,800 subscribers by the end of March. So we have to continue to increase, so continue to like, subscribe, and share this content that you find is good. And then if there are things that you think can be improved, hit my inbox, matt at stretch4.co. If you are a free subscriber, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for opening these emails. Thank you for reading these newsletters, listening to these podcasts. If you find it valuable, please share it with your you know, colleagues, friends, if you are someone in marketing at a startup that's generally series B or higher, would definitely love to talk to you specifically if you're a B2B marketing person, would definitely love to talk about what value you get from mediums like newsletters or podcasts. But 
That's the business breakdown on the Stretch 4 podcast, how we're doing. Hold me accountable to these numbers because I try to do this. Again, I don't do this for for fun. It is fun for me, but unfortunately I can't quote him, but it's like, you know, I don't do this to just drive a RAV4, <laughs> if, if some of you know what I mean. And so it's it's coming together pretty well, and I thank my wife for helping out a lot with the editing my mom helps me out with a lot of the editing indirectly as well, so shout out to her. But thank you all for listening to the podcast, and that's it for me. What you have coming up next on the show, last but not least, is our interview with our guests for the week. Our guest for the week is Celine Benyat, who's coming to us from Berlin, Germany. Uh, Celine runs a company called Bento.me where he's also provided us with a code to use, which I'll announce at the end of the show. But thank you all for listening. Please enjoy the interview with Celine. He gives into his life, how he structures his life, being a founder in Germany. also shows some insights on the cost of living in Berlin is a lot cheaper than I had imagined. And it makes a lot of sense for that to be emerging and growing tech hub in Europe. So hope you enjoy the show with Salim. Thank you all for listening to the Stretch 4 podcast. This is Matt Parker. Welcome to the Stretch 4 podcast. Today on an interview, I have with me Salim Benyeh, who is the founder of Bento. He's coming to us from Germany. Salim, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. The week is winding down, so the fun is about to start. <laughs> yes, the fun in the weekend. And we'll definitely talk about what, what, the, what the lifestyle is like there in Germany. So with the Stretch 4 podcast, we're starting a series where we're focused on founders and understanding those founders that are going through some of the best accelerators. Salim participated in Sequoia's inaugural ARC program in 2022. And he is building his company. Salim, just to get started, here's a quote that I want to know if you know what this quote comes from. Mm -hmm. Where you're headed, they don't take kindly to strangers. Old Biff. I should know it because I heard it, but I don't mm -hmm. know where it's coming from. Okay. Back to the Future, which is in your LinkedIn profile. Nice. So I'm assuming yes. you that's a movie that you... You love watched a couple you, times. You watched a yes. couple times. Very, yes, very, for sure. very famous movie. So, Salim, you know, you, you know, I'm out here on the West Coast in San Francisco. So mm -hmm. It's eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, you're in Germany where it's 5 p.m. How does your lifestyle relate to working in Germany? Or are you, do you do a lot of things on U.S. time? Are you doing things on mainly European time? Do you have, customers across the world your global company or you guys just focus primarily on germany and maybe tell me about like kind of how your day your day goes like how much do you sleep you know when mm -hmm. are you up when are you when are you when are you down yeah a lot of questions uh, so i'm going to focus on sort of yeah how does my day look like and then maybe how does this feed into into my working schedule so i'm one of these people that is able to sort of not sleep too much I've always been been like that. I don't know. Ever since I was young, I always woke up early. I'm sort of a, a morning person. 
just today I, I I told someone, you know, currently I'm slightly jet lagged because I'm coming back from from Asia, and so I wake up around at four thirty five ish in the morning, and every time sort of my my clock goes towards five a.m. I'm happy because mentally for me, then the day can start. So the night ends at 5 a.m. for me. Um, so I wake up, but I'd say on, on, on average, I, I wake up at 6, 6.30. I go to boot camp or just a normal gym because I like to work out on an empty stomach. So basically, I do that in the morning and then get to the office, I'd say around 9.30, 10-ish, if I'm honest. And then basically my day just keeps on going. Um, and it depends if I have calls with the U.S. or not, if I have calls with Asia or not. And this is then when, you know, my days tend probably to end or my working hours probably at 10, 10, 10.30ish. And I'm deliberate about that because quite honestly, since I'm a morning person, my brain starts to shut down in the evening. And so I'm just not a night owl. And so... I stopped forcing myself to try to, you know, be like this person that grinds during the night and tries to, you know, that's just not me. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of how my day looks like, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so you, so unpacking some things there, you see, you just got back from mm -hmm. Asia. Do you, do you find your, do you, are you a big traveler and how do you, how do you manage your kind of regimen when you're like on the road, you know, say you're in Asia, you're in a different time zone. You also mentioned you go do a boot camp. How do you how do you kind of stay on top of things when you're traveling and things like that? Yeah. So yeah, I do travel a lot actually, and that's due to to the nature of the business where we have a, a user base that is global. There's only so much that you can understand from looking at data. So what I like to do is to travel to the countries where we have a big user base and then really try to understand what is actually motivating them to use the product, what are sort of the, the things in between the lines that, that make them adopt the product. And so when traveling, speaking specifically about my regiment, I think what tended or what tends to work well is I deliberately choose areas to live in where I have in close proximity things that are important to me which I must say, for instance, is a gym. I like going to the gym because for me, it's, it's almost like meditation or going to boot camp. It really, and I, and I deliberately use the word, word meditation because it, having a heavy workout or a, an exhausting workout just helps me to get into a zone where I start listening to my body. I start listening to how I breathe. I start listening to just like how my body reacts to, to stress, to load. And this, for me, really calms me down and, and helps me bring that focus into the day. And so, yeah, if, if I travel, I want to make sure I have a good gym close to me or I have a good co-working space close to me. Or if I'm lucky enough, if I have an investor in that, in that country or a friend in that country, that these people are close to me so I can get to their offices. So I try to actually make it as easy as possible for me to maintain certain activities that I know are good for my mental health, let's say. No, that's, that's, that's great. I think that's, I think that's very important. I mean, I try to do the same with, I'm going to Miami at the end of the month and I'm like, I go to Equinox and I'm trying yeah. to, you know, design my hotel or wherever I'm staying around the local Equinox. Cause I know I can go yeah. there. That's kind of like, like you mentioned, the gym is kind of like a place to, to have like something that you can consistently control and you can consistently Correct. do. 
so jumping in the gym, it seems like you're you're pretty active. What are your what are your what's your workout regimen? Are you a weights guy? Are you heavy cardio? Are you in the gym yeah. long hours, short, quick spurts? What's your what's yeah. your preference? I love these these detail oriented specific questions. So I used to play a lot of ball, let's say uh, American football or football for for your American listeners. For us in Europe, we call it American football. Right? So I used I used to play a lot of football, and and there we at the time we're obviously hitting the gym a lot. And so there, obviously, as everyone knows, it's a lot of you know quick movements and heavy heavy weights. And as I sort of grew older, I stopped just lifting tremendous amounts of weights into getting more hit specific exercises. So currently, actually, I, I really enjoy hit exercises, so high intensity workouts. And I like that because it sort of is a different sort of stress on my body than, than I was used to. I like actually now using my body more than just to push weights, but also to run and, and you know, do, do agility sort of movements again. So currently for the past, I'd say year, my workout regimen is about three times hit a week and about two times um, specific weights at the gym. Nice. So you're, you're a hit guy and, and you stick with the weights. And are you just, you know, on the, the weights and, you know, we try to, we try to focus obviously on things that aren't typically talked about on founder podcast. Sure, sure. We talk about the gym. We talk yeah. about your work schedule. You're up. How do you, how do you balance the diet? I mean, are you, are you cooking for yourself? Are you eating out? Like what's the, what's your kind of like flow there with, with, with dieting and eating and things yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I want to, I want to be very transparent and honest with, with your listeners. So I used to be very strict on my diet in my, in my early twenties where I was really focusing on growing bigger at the gym to not get hurt on, on, on the court, you know, kind of thing. I was really serious about my diet and I was meal prepping and I was, you know, counting my, my macros, even my macros, I was counting them um, to make sure my muscles were correct and all of that stuff. And then one sort of real life came into place. I was, I was getting out of university, starting my first startup. I started to also appreciate having a social life around going out and eat at restaurants, for instance. So what happened then is that I took my obsession about having a clean diet. I sort of started to adapt it to just making smart, quote unquote, I'm making air quotes here, smart choices at restaurants. So I was never the guy who then who said, you know, leave out the salad dressing or something. But sometimes I, I did ask, like, could you maybe put the salad dressing on the side or something like this? You know, this is how I then try to have a social life around restaurants. And now, quite frankly, today I eat whatever I fancy. I just make sure that I don't go overboard on things. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yes. It's very transparent. I mean, I think it's hard as a founder to manage all of these things. Some people are very strict. Some aren't. I find myself in the middle. I find myself aware yeah. of things. Correct. And, you know, That's my, a good way to put it. You know, and I'm, I'm married, so my wife is, you know, obviously we, we eat together a lot. And so she's much more aware of like what we're eating. But I like to eat out myself. You know, I'd much yeah. rather be eating out than cooking for myself, especially when I'm on the road. So it's definitely a lot easier. Is in and in Germany, what is the what is what is the food like, right? Like I I've never I've never been to Germany. I've had I've ate at a few German restaurants here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. What's yeah. the what's the type of food like? What's what's you know, what's the normal German restaurant dining experience like? Yeah. Um, so a fun question to me because 
I see myself as quite the foodie. I, I, as as you just said, I love I love eating out, and so I, I can specifically speak to Berlin about that question. And funnily enough, Berlin is a very cosmopolitan city. It brings together. It's just like this hodgepodge of different cultures and people and and just ways of living, which is also reflected in in the gastronomic scene, so in in the restaurant scene. And so, do you find a lot of typical German food? Not really. You find a lot of Turkish food because Berlin has a huge Turkish community. You find a lot of Asian food in the sense of more like Southeast Asian, you know, let's say Thai food, Vietnamese food. You find a lot of, yeah, just like food all around sort of the globe. So it's tough for me to speak what is the, the typical German food that, that, that you would have. I think actually in Berlin, that answer would be it's a cosmopolitan diet. It's rarely just the schnitzel with, with potato or the Schweinshaxe or the pork chop. No, it's, it's, it's a healthy mix of whatever cultures make up Berlin. Okay, so it's a very diverse. Which I love about the city, by the way. Yeah, I, I, this is yeah. what I love about the city and is one of the reasons why I'm here. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, having only specific German food would be, you know, it would be tough for, I mean, say me, it would be yeah. definitely because I'm a pretty picky eater. But if I can, <laughs> if I can... You know, go to a nice Vietnamese spot in in Berlin. Vietnamese, or for instance, you know, like you have fantastic Levantine cuisine here. So more from the mm -hmm. Orient, you know, like mm -hmm. Israeli food and and all of that. Like Berlin for Israeli food, the bomb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just tonight, I'm going to go to one of my favorite restaurants that serves Israeli food. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. no, that's that's awesome. So talking now a little bit change in the conversation focus a little bit more on like personal you know kind of like finance and how money works where you are with your company obviously sure. you know you work with sequoia you work with some you know very strong brand for you know investors you're in berlin you're in an inner city like what's the what's the cost of living feel in berlin right like what's i don't know if you're single married bachelor but mm -hmm. like what's it cost to live well in the city you know if if from by yeah. your standards yeah. So living well in in Berlin, I think is rather, let's say, affordable. However, there needs to be a caveat in the sense that Berlin, much like any other cosmopolitan city in the last couple of years, got much more expensive just because it's a, a magnet for talent, for young talent, because the city is fun. And at the same time, it's beneficial to be here in terms of your career because you have a lot of tech money here and you have a lot of tech companies here that brings in more VC money that brings in more talent so the city has is attractive to a lot of young people which in turn makes the city now more expensive because it gets crowded right so I'd say if you would have asked me five six seven years ago what does it take to live well in Berlin I think probably my answer would have been at least 3x lower than what I'm going to say now Oh, wow. And so it's also, also what I need to, to say, since I'm, I'm Swiss, probably I have a bit of, let's say, a higher, higher standard or, or need <laughs> yeah. for standard when it comes to yeah. sort of, yeah. you know, having a good life quality kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so probably I'm spending above average. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Swiss, you're coming from, yeah, you're coming from the land of, of, of ever flowing money, right? Kind of. <laughs> the, the, or or the, I would, I would have said, I would have said of, of a very nice life quality kind of thing. Yes, um, exactly. And, and exactly. so if you want to recreate this in, in Berlin, let's say you, you're going to spend more money. Um, okay. Gotcha. So I'd say 
you know, if, 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 if you want to have like a good one or two bedroom kind of apartment, not in the most expensive neighborhood, but also not the most cheapest, I'd say you're going to pay, I'd say 1.5 K mm-hmm. a month for that apartment. And then eating out in Berlin is still very cheap comparatively. Um, so yeah. I'd say if you would be eating out every day and you would not pay too much attention where you eat. So sometimes expensive spots, sometimes normal spots, sometimes cheap spots. I, I'd mm. say you, you're going to be probably spending, I don't know, around another thousand probably. But that would yeah. be really eating out like literally every day and, and, you know, having fun. And so I'd say cost of living in Berlin maybe averages out around two and a half thousand per month, something like mm-hmm. this, 3,000. Mm-hmm. But then you have a nice life. Nice lifestyle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're really nice lifestyle. Um, you know, I've, I have friends who, who maybe want to save money or who just don't want to spend too much money. They, they have, they have good apartments for like 800 bucks a month. Wow. Right. And you can so, get everywhere. You can get everywhere you need to get travel wise. Like you have nonstop yes. flights, you know, you can Correct. get all across Asia, get to, you know, get to the U S that's pretty good. Um, that's pretty yeah, I, I mean, so, you know, Berlin used to be very cheap because it used to be, obviously, you know, because of, of history, Ber, Ber, Germans, Germany's history, right? Mm-hmm. It, it used to be a rather sort of poor city as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Because they needed to repay a lot of debt, let's say, Germany, right? Yep. And so it used to be the city that, that was not too expensive and you had a tremendous amount of creatives who came here because mm-hmm. of the underground sort of creative culture that you had in Berlin because sort of you had obviously the you know, the separation of, you know, the UDSSR and, 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 German, and, and, and Germany, sort of the, the East and the West. And you had the, the wall, the, the Great Wall that went through Germany, let's, uh, through Berlin, let's say, right? Yeah. And, and so this brought on like this counterculture people that came to Berlin, right? And so you had sort of the Dadaism that came up in Berlin as, as part of that, right? Sort of this, this cultural clash. And then once the wall f- fell, once the wall got broken down, you had this massive tension that got released. Yeah. And, and so more creative people felt even more comfortable in Berlin, right? And so it was always a city where creatives came to live. And so it was never too expensive because the techies were not here, let's say. Yeah. Right? Once the techies and come, it, it drives once, Yes, exactly. Because, you know, there are higher salaries. Yes. Right? And, yes. and so then the market reacts to it. And, and, and sort of... This is currently happening in in Berlin, right? Got you. And so as you mentioned that, getting into kind of some like thinking about founders, compensation, hiring, what are your, how how are you thought about it from building your company? Maybe obviously you can correlate that to going through the Sequoia program. How was, how was that communicated to you that you want to approach salary compensation for yourself, for your team, as you grow and scale, you know, what were maybe maybe giving your 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 quick take on how you think about those things building kind of at the earliest stage? Yeah. So thinking about compensation, I sort of have two guiding principles. One is it should reflect sort of the the local market, let's say. If 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 I'm hiring Germany, I don't want to pay Swiss prices. Right. Uh, that's guiding principle number one. Number two is you always got to respect the cash situation of an early stage startup which means cash is always king at an early stage startup no cash no company right that's that easy so which means i want to pay as much as it takes for the employee to be 
comfortable in the sense that they don't really need to worry about money on a daily basis. And that number often is much lower than a number that you would get at Facebook or at Google or at Apple or anywhere in these companies. Because not worrying about money doesn't mean having so much money that, that you're going to feel super good. It's literally you don't worry about it. And this is really important to me because if if you have employees that, that kind of have to worry about, you know, certain financial decisions during a month, it will be reflected in their work, honestly. It's financial stress is something that just creeps in slowly. And, and it's going to be, you know, in the back of your mind throughout the day. Sometimes you think about it actively. Sometimes it's just in the back of your mind. And it's just like this weird feeling that you have. That, oh, no, once I get home, I will need to deal with this financial stress again. So mm-hmm. these are sort of the two guiding principles that, that I have when, when I think about compensation. Mm-hmm. And do you, from your own perspective, what are you, you know, building your company in Berlin? I'm assuming that is strategic, right? Where the, the cost of living, right. as you mentioned, it's definitely much cheaper to live there than say San Francisco or yes. Swiss or you yeah. know anywhere else is that something yeah. you've designed as a but you're a global company so you have customers mm-hmm. all across the the world is that a strategic advantage that you feel like for your team you'll be able to build bigger larger better teams there than you would if you were somewhere else with with less competition and less kind of uh-huh. dynamics around cost of living 100% i think what i'm prioritizing though is not so much cost of talent but together with the accessibility of talent. Because in Berlin, as I, as I sort of talked about before, it's currently this very interesting moment in time where you have, as I said, more and more sort of young people come here, so more talent comes here, which in terms attracts more tech companies, which in terms in, 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 attracts more VC money, which then attracts more talent and more companies. So it's really this spiral upward currently inside of the city and more specifically this also means you have people who already seen scaling once or twice and that's rather rare in europe and it used to be the case let's say not even that long ago 2013 14-ish when you were sitting in switzerland and building a company you could literally not hire talent that's seen global scaling inside of a company before just because yeah. it didn't exist. Switzerland did not have unicorns that conquered the world before, right? So hiring and finding these people was literally impossible. Whereas now, in, in specifically in Berlin, you have had multiple unicorns, multiple global company success stories, which brings talent that already seen it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So you can actually start hiring these people, which you know obviously is a tremendous benefit to the company. So yes, I would say Berlin is, you know, from a salary slash compensation perspective attractive to build a company here much more though it's it's actually the quality of talent that is currently available in the city to which which is why why we're here no that makes sense that makes sense and should you you know going kind of maybe deeper into your experience as a founder your last company rosy reality which you ran for about three years what was that experience like and maybe walk me through kind of the high level, what you learned from that experience for you to kind of now do this again with mm-hmm. kind of more insights and more experience. Cause like you're, this isn't your first rodeo. Yeah. Um, so small, small correction. We, we ran Rosie for about five and a half years. The, the two first years were based at the university, which sometimes, you know, makes, makes it hard to see, but yeah, we started with, we started in 2015 ish 
and then got acquired in 2020. So, I mean, what are, I mean, the big, big takeaways from, from there, basically, we started already discussing, right? Basically, what, what informs my thinking now, for instance, around compensation is something that, that I developed during that time. Because at the beginning, I was maybe overpaying or underpaying, you know, like most probably if, if, if we go back to 2015, when, when I did my first hire, probably I was really hardballing on low salary because you need to have the commitment and, you know, like, so, you know, these are the things probably that, that, you know, I, I learned because of that. All the, all the lessons, you focus on the ones, so things I wouldn't do again. Was that a question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think big lessons around just managing people. I think... I can honestly say I, I became a much better manager in the sense that I now focus much more on on output than just pure input, right? Um, I think I was I was too much of a hardliner at the beginning, and and I think it was because a I never did that before. B when you were reading sort of around startup culture, you know, when you were soaking up the literature at that time around what startups are supposed to be and how they're supposed to be run, and you know, you you became such a hardliner because apparently it's only the highway or, or nothing. It's only you're super passionate about that problem or it's nothing else. Or, you know, so I think that the things that informed my thinking at the time just made me become a very harsh, non really people focused manager. I was just mm -hmm. really focused on the input that people actually bring to work so I was focused on hours. I was focused on just like, yeah, I'd say this is what, what I would not do again, obviously. And I'm not doing it again right now. Yeah. I so you're taking people, a different approach now. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I'm focused much more on output than focused on just finding the right people for the right tasks instead of just brute forcing certain people into certain functions. And, you know, I think I got much better at defining objectives and, and why certain objectives matter. I got much better at sort of, you know, communicating the vision around why we do certain things. And I think a lot of that just comes down to using plain English instead of using bloated startup language often. You know. That makes sense. And so you now, you know, that kind of keys into kind of maybe the last part that we talk about your experience with Sequoia their program, you know, from, from whatever, you know, how it's defined to me, it's built in this kind of process driven approach, right? They're kind of teaching you their ethos, their way of company building. So you're part of the initial class as well. So congratulations on that. Maybe walk me through that process. How did you, how did you come upon that program and what were some of the key things that you, when you decided to do it, you know, what were some of the key learnings you had early? And then we'll maybe get into kind of what you actually did in the program as well. Mm -hmm. So how how came out about doing it? So when I came together with, with my co-founder, Mujib, who's the most brilliant engineer I've ever worked with in the past 10 years, and so I'm very happy that we're a team, we were thinking that we're not going to take any funding for whatever we're going to do next because we sort of, let's say, have the means to bootstrap, so let's just bootstrap. And we took that approach for, for quite some, some months, actually. And then there was one serendipitous conversation with a very good friend of mine in Berlin. We're literally like, I mean, your audience can't see, but there's a street in front of me. We're literally walking down that street. And he talked about that one tweet by Sequoia that was referencing ARC. And if I have seen it or, or not, and obviously I, had, I did not see it, 
And he said, I think you should really talk to Zephy, who made that tweet, who seems to be running that program. I happen to know him. And I was like, okay, that, that sounds fun. And so he made the introduction. I talked to Zephy, who is one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to. Um, and at the same time, super genuinely friendly, which is sort of a rare combination, but he has it. And after that conversation, I kind of was eager to to get going with, with Sequoia Arc because what Zephy pitched me during that meeting sounded like actual value coming towards early stage founders. And it wasn't just like the VC promise, like, oh, we're going to help you and we're going to make sure, like we're going to bring in the, the talent partner and all that. No, it was, it was a way different pitch. It was really, we're here to support you, understand your potential and sort of build out that ambition for you to build a category defining company. And that pitch was just something I've never heard before. And mm -hmm. two really resonated with me because this is what I wanted. I wanted to be surrounded by similarly driven and obsessed people in just building something category defining, right? And that and was so the you, pitch it, that Zephy made it made to me. Mm -hmm. And so you get you talk to Zephy. Zephy put you 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 maybe you didn't even have to apply if you talked to him, right? You you were talking directly to maybe one of the decision makers, or did you go through the process and go through like a interview process, or was it kind of like, hey, yep. we're we're in? No, so he made me go through the process. <laughs> mm -hmm. He pitched yeah. me. He pitched me. He pitched me the program, and then said, "I think you should really apply because it, it it is for people like you, and I would love mm -hmm. to see your application." Turns out, at the time, he was not the decision maker. Because at no, the time, okay. he literally just started. I think it was his second day. And mm -hmm. so the decision maker, um, turned out, were the Sequoia partners behind the scenes. And that, gotcha. that's why, why I needed to put in my application. And so I did that. I think on the last day of the deadline, I put in my application. And at the time, sort of the application form, very sorry to say that, Zephy was terrible because you weren't even getting yeah. a an email feedback that you kind of filled it filled out the application yeah. that it kind of got there you had no idea it was like okay what happened here yeah and so i did that and a couple of days later i get an email from george robson who's one of the partners at um, sequoia mm -hmm. here in europe and basically invited me to to an interview and you know i, I didn't really see it as an interview because i you know, I pitched so many investors before, so I just saw it as what it was, sort of a chat between, you know, an interested investor and, and me as a founder. And this is yep. exactly what it turned out to be. It was a very genuine, honest and transparent discussion about me, me as a founder, sort of founder market fit. What was my idea that I want to sort of execute on and sort of on my end, I wanted to understand, is George someone that I would want to work with? Right. And yeah. I really tried to understand that because, again, the idea was to bootstrap and not take money. So I really wanted to understand that are the promises that Zephy made, are they real? And so they would be real because George would be the person who who I would work with. So I tried to understand, yeah. are these promises real in that person, in George? And it turns out they definitely are. Like George was was a wonderful partner to talk to, ultra smart, sharp mm -hmm. as hell even though yeah. he's like 26 years old or something. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. And from that time on, I was bought in. I really wanted to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, go ahead. And what was the size, you know, getting into that program, it was 
you initial batch of founders how many how many founders was it in that initial batch were you guys spending more time together or was things kind of siloed with you more spending time with George and the Sequoia team or was it kind of collaborative with other founders as well there in Europe it was 17 companies 33 founders it was four weeks in person and four weeks online and we got to spend time in a group as much as possible by design. So Sequoia really paid attention to A, show us sort of how to build category-defining companies. Yes. However, they really tried to unlock our potential, to sort of unlock our ambition to reach even higher. Because their sort of hypothesis was European founders are fantastic product and tech focused founders where they might need help at or on is having these grandiose ambition to really dominate the category. And this is what they really wanted to to show us and teach us. And so we got to spend a lot of time with their partners, not just me, for instance, not just with George, but with everyone else. You got to spend a lot of time with actual legendary Sequoia founders. And you got to spend a lot of time with your peers because what they believed is if you spend time with driven and passionate peers, it will raise the tide for everyone. And mm -hmm. and it turned out that was true. And last question on Sequoia, besides yourself and the Bento team, right? You're, yeah. Who's the most successful founding team in your batch of those 17 companies? Or who do you, if you had a, if you had a, you know, magic ball and you could predict to say this is going to be the biggest category defining company from these this group of this cohort i work with could you make a prediction now based on the data that you have i probably could do i want to 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 do that right now <laughs> yeah probably not I, I i you know i like like all of 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 my peers and so don't don't make me answer answer this question but what okay. what, what i can say is there are tremendous companies in this batch and i do mm -hmm. believe three, four, five companies out of that batch, including Bento. Including Bento. Will, will, will hit big. Yes. Nice, nice. So that brings us to the kind of last category. We'll talk a bit about Bento, right? This is the company mm -hmm. you're building now. Maybe yes. walk, walk the audience through, you know, the problem space, how you guys discovered it, and kind of what that big problem or that big category of need that you saw to, to go build this company. Mm -hmm. So Bento is a personal page to show everything you are, create, and sell. It's sort of a link in bio, but rich and beautiful. So it really, what we really want to do is we want to help makers, so people who create content, we want to help them have a personal space on the internet where they can coherently showcase themselves, talk to their audience, and ultimately monetize their audience. How we discovered this problem space really was by many iterative loops as we started off um, as actually something called creator space where we had a medium-esque blog where people blogged about their past work who they worked with what sort of technology stack they use and all that stuff and this was our way of helping you showcase yourself however what we what we noticed with creator space at the very beginning was it took a tremendous amount of intellectual effort to upload content to start showcasing yourself. Right? Just think about an empty white page where you need to write the blog. 
it's it's hard and so we took a very let's say extreme position and ask ourselves what would be the quickest and easiest way to start really coherently showcasing yourself in a beautiful manner and this is where we then came up with the idea of instead of recreating your work just link to it why start writing content about it just link to it it already exists and so this is when then the concept of bento came up we said we're going to help you pull together all the content that is relevant to you and that will showcase your personality by just linking to it and we're going to make sure that it will reflect your personality so we took deliberate design decisions where yes it's a very sort of coherent and grid-esque manner how you demonstrate your work how you, how you showcase your links however we let you customize those links so instead of just a link tree it's a beautiful bento page where you can upload pictures to your links you can upload videos you can have different colors you can have a moving avatar picture you can have you know all of these things to showcase your personality yet be very quick and efficient about it so that the bento sense. experience really is from starting the product so from literally pasting in your your links to having a completed personal landing page on the internet literally takes you two minutes and and for you all, you know, because obviously as a creator, building this podcast, I have a newsletter, it is a lot of work to get, you know, information, say, out of Notion, where I write most of the things or document mm -hmm. all my things I'm reading that I want to share in my newsletter, getting it into a system. I mean, we're using a system here, Riverside, for podcasts, where they're specifically designed mm -hmm. for podcast recording. Walk me through maybe the technical challenges of building a solution like Bento, because on the front end, for me, it's easy. Two minutes to get all my links there. But on the back end, from a technical yeah. perspective, connecting all these systems to make it just that easy can be a quite complicated yeah. process. And, and some companies have done it right. You know, obviously, Linktree's gotten a bit big brand, but there's complaints there. I mean, there's, you know, kind of more and more of these platforms but you know design is one obviously thing that's lacking are you guys leveraging that and then what are the technical challenges you see with that building a design oriented uh, system for for creators mm -hmm. um so a couple of questions there um at i think we need to sort of tackle these questions um in terms of of a timeline so when when we are at let's say timestamp zero so we start executing on the idea bento the objectives there really were we need to help users as quickly and as frictionless as possible to persistently showcase links that they care about. So we started really technically focusing on that. How can we enable users to just copy and paste stuff into an empty, empty web page? And how do we make this delightful? Right. And so from a technical perspective, I think a lot of work was around making the interactions visually pleasing actually because at the end of the day it was just pasting links into an empty page let's say so the vast amount of work went into making that experience delightful in the sense that as soon as you paste something you get a visual feedback or when you start dragging your links because they are like in these sort of in a grid system, like like link bubbles, let's say, when you grab them with your mouse, they literally have physics. So they 
plop out and then you when you drag them around they kind of wobble and so since Mujib and I worked on games before, for instance, we wrote an entire sort of um, physics system into, into um, the onboarding process. So this is what we focus on at the beginning. Make it as quick and frictionless as possible to actually get to a completed page. And then timestamp, let's say one, we started focusing on that user delight. Right? And sort of now what we start focusing on really is to help you help the viewer understand who you are as a bento owner, right? Because it's a marketplace or that's a two-sided two-sided market. We have the bento owners and we have the bento viewers, let's say. And so now since the owner, let's say, product has been built out to a stage where we believe it's okay for now, we start transitioning to the viewer experience. And, and so now the technical challenges really are um, how can we make sure that viewers have a coherent and consistent experience when being on a bento page yet understand that these bento owners have vastly different personalities right and and so this goes into our design system in the sense that we need to have a design that allows a consistent experience throughout different profiles yet it it can't be as rigid as not allowing for you matt for instance to show that you care about dogs or you care about the beach or you know so that's sort of currently the design and technical challenges that, that we're facing great that's a that's a great breakdown of, of that Salim. And, and and maybe last question before we wrap up maybe share a bit about the first customers or the first users of bento and like how that flywheel is going now you know you guys completed this sequoia program last summer you guys are kind of now in a beta version of your product. You've kind of strategically built a small team. You said four people. Are you working with like a specific set of design customers on that experience right now? And like, how's that process going? How are you thinking through that as before you scale this out to, you know, tens of thousands of people across the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I gladly talk about our users because it's a wonderful sort of community of creative makers, creative, you know, let's say, powerhouses and so you know i'd say the typical user is someone who who sees him himself or herself as a maker a maker of great content be it physical content or be it digital content and is someone who has a niche audience that they talk to and is someone who cares about deepening that connection with that audience and so the way we we built for them is by literally building with them so we have a very engaged Discord group. We have a tremendously engaged Twitter community. We have people who organize themselves to answer their questions or just tweet at us or write us DMs. Or, I mean, we have Slack channels. I'm looking at them right now. They're called User Feedback and Wall of Love. And every time sort of something happens on Twitter that you know, is appreciation or is, is feedback, it gets into uh, our Slack channel. Currently, it this happens still sort of kind of manually, not everything, but kind of manually. And it's literally like every two to three minutes, it's like bing, 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 it comes in. And so we just see that feedback like on a minute basis. And we, we try to respond to as much as we can. And we try to sort of put as much as we can on our, on our whiteboard and then strategically bucket, bucket the requests and the feedback and start building towards the broader vision of Bento and start you know, prioritizing what we see in the market. So it's really, we built Bento with the community. 
Awesome. Awesome. So it's great community focused and in, in how you all are building it. Well, great. Uh, Salim, this has been a great interview, man. I, I definitely appreciate you coming on the Stretch Four podcast, sharing your story. You know, we try to focus on founder stories at the earliest stages, right? Companies that are building, that are, you know, kind of really in the trenches of, of getting their company to be category defining. To part, I would definitely love for you to kind of share any way our audience can reach out to you directly, use your product. I know I tried to sign up. looks like you need a, a code. Yeah. So what can people do to get active and get using Bento and then any other parting words you want to have for the audience? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. First of all, I want to say I love my time here, Matt. Wonderful interview. Thanks for the for the very detail-oriented questions. Gave me the ability mm-hmm. to or the opportunity to talk to some stuff that I usually don't talk about. Um, yep. How can people reach me? Very easily, how you can reach almost every founder. Just use their first name at company name you know mm-hmm. so it's salim at bento.me i would love mm-hmm. to to get feedback about what we discussed here or feedback about bento how to get access to bento you know what we do we can have actually your listeners go to bento.me slash sign up okay. and there use the code let's go matt studio okay or we can also have you know stretch, stretch four. four stretch four let's yeah see. stretch let's four stretch Perfect. four Stretch for. stretch for so go to bento.me slash sign up use the code stretch for and you'll be able to get access to bento when you listen awesome. to this podcast awesome awesome well salim thank you so much for sharing your time i'll let you hit hit up those german happy hours i know it's around yes. a happy hour time i guess you guys have happy hour in berlin signing off here from san francisco it's been great this is the stretch for podcast and thank you uh salim for joining us today thanks so much matt awesome what a wonderful interview with Salim with the Bento.me team. Very gracious guy. Makes me want to go and live in Germany, honestly. I mean, the cost of living in, living in a cosmopolitan city doesn't sound too bad. Being able to get to all the places you need to get to, uh, still being able to be a part of Sequoia's brand and, and their flagship ARC program. I mean, sounds like a great deal. That's why I really like interviewing founders from all across the world. And, you know, the really thing that I'm really learning a lot from just doing this podcast, interviewing people like Salim, is just the global nature of of, of Silicon Valley. Like, it really is not a single place where, like, I am pro San Francisco. I live here. I work here. I think it's a great place to be. But even in San Francisco, like, a lot of friends that I have and meet, man, they're not even necessarily native to America. Like, we talked a lot of them last week. It really is a global ethos and it's a connectivity tissue across people, across builders, across founders. So it's always, you know, you have that connection with folks in different parts of the world. You know, me and Salim able to connect. He's in Germany. I'm in San Francisco. We're able to connect through the Internet, through these means to produce podcasts. So very excited. Definitely check out his website. I'm going to check it out. Bento.me. Use Stretch 4 to get in because it's still on the wait list. But I think these creator platforms are very interesting. And being a podcast creator and a writer myself now, distribution is so critical. So how can you make it simple for creators to get their content out? It's like, Tyler, actually, I'll play it. Just give me one second. I know a lot of people who make things don't stand proudly by their stuff, whether they don't want to. It's it's something I'm noticing a lot with the like the generation of right under me is like I don't know if they too cool or they don't want to look thirsty or they're not proud of their but like you went through something 
you broke words down. You figured it out in the structural format, found music to go along with it. You recorded it, recorded, you know, you know, most of the time you don't just do it in one take. You go back and forth, da 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 da, fix some parts, get some parts replayed. You edit it, you mix it, sample clearances, pay the mixer, this and that, da 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 da. They go pay some kid to do an album cover. It's a whole thing. And you mean to tell me that you're going to be passive with your own and just put it on your story once? Are you fucking crazy, bro? I'm still promoting my album that came out in June. It's a year out, and I'm still out here. Like, call me if you get lost. Like, hey. <laughs> Right? I know. So, you know, I think that is a very big piece of what's happening with the creator economy right now is so much content gets produced across the internet from creators, people doing things, building things, creating podcasts, creating content. But like the promotionary part of it is, you know, somewhat lacking. So I think products like Bento, which they plan to be a category defining company, they want to be, you know, the link tree for, you know, that specific type of creative production, what's going to happen is you have to really think about how you promote your content, how you get your content out, how you distribute it. And so I think there's going to be a, a plethora of these new content products and tools that allow you to easily share the information that you uh, want to share, whether it's a YouTube video, whether it's a Substack, whether it's uh, a podcast. And I think that is why there's a lot of energy around the productization of these types of companies. So I think Salim and his team, uh, they get that and they're doing it from a design perspective. Cause I will say a lot of the products that are out there, they just aren't well designed and it's very hard for a lot of creatives to, it's just another thing you got to do. So it, the easier you make it, the easier you integrate it with the native tools that the creators are using. I think the better off you're going to be. So check out bento.me slash sign up. Give feedback to, you know, to Salim and his team. They're really, they're cranking things out. They're a four person team. So they're probably very iterative on what they're building. What's going on with me? Call these, calling these church announcements because I'm from the South and that's kind of what they say at the end of church in the South. They also say it on a couple other podcasts, but it does, it does make sense. So modern tax, if you're a B2B fintech related founder, operator, I definitely want to talk to you about what we're building at Modern Tax. We have customers now across fintech. We have customers that are financial institutions. We have customers that are insurance providers. We're a very horizontally focused company, but we are trying to make access to tax information for both businesses, primarily businesses, much more easier than it is in the status quo. Uh, so give me a shout out if you're looking to check out the product, moderntax.io slash contact. That will go directly to our uh, onboarding and sales organization, uh, and we'll get back out to you, get a demo set up. So definitely check us out at moderntax.io. Uh, I will be also speaking next week or this week, uh, February 10th at the cap table coalition and pay it forward MBA black history month panel. So I'm very excited about that. Like I don't, you know, black history month, obviously to me, every month it should be black history month. If you're in America, I mean, black people pretty much built America from the ground up uh and i think it's it's unfortunate that we get this one out of 12 months where everybody is just inundating us with all this history uh 
But I am speaking on this panel, and the reason I'm doing it is because, hey, I got a newsletter. I got a company. I got a podcast. Like, you know, I got to get out there. And it's it's an interesting panel guest. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Kiana Patterson, is going to be on the panel. She's coming up from L.A. Uh, Mercedes Bent, who I don't know personally, but I've obviously read and heard a lot about Mercedes. She's a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. She she handles her whole fintech practice there. And then also a gentleman by the name of Joseph Akintolayo was added to the panel. So we'll be the two founders. Uh, Mercedes and Kiana will represent the venture space and we'll just be having an interesting conversation about the dynamics of what's happening right now. Uh, the theme of the, the talk is we're in rough times. How do we help each other rise during this time? Right. And that's kind of, you know, that just similar to what's going on in tech in general is the founder VC dynamics are very interesting right now. Um, both are being kind of pushed into different positions uh, you add in the the DNI and the representation. Uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. So if you're in San Francisco, that's going to be next Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, at the Phoenix San Francisco headquarters, uh, which is at 631 Howard Street. A link to the event will be in the show notes. It looks like they'll have drinks and appetizers, and it's brought on by Pay It Forward, the Cap Table Coalition, Phoenix, and the Latin X. MBA program. Moving on, I'm also going to be speaking at an event and doing a talk at the FinTech Meetup, which is going to be taking place between March 19th and March 22nd at the Aria Las Vegas. Uh, the FinTech Meetup is really designed to be, uh, if you're familiar with FinTech, the money 2020 of the Q1. Uh, so I'm excited to be there presenting uh, on Monday. And I'll be in Vegas probably for two days, but uh, looking forward to that. Over 3,000 fintechers will be there, um, supposedly 30,000 facilitated meetings, 175 speakers, 65-plus content sessions, 200 sponsors and exhibitors, and uh, some of the best networking events to be had in the fintech. So excited and getting preparation for that event. Uh, looking forward to that. But other than that, that is all for this week's show. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Parker. I'm signing off. Have a wonderful week and let's get to it.